Hey everyone, welcome back to part two of the Best of Power Hour 2022. In today's episode, we're going to hear from the nation's favourite GP, Dr Chatterjee, minimalist Chris Lovett, Yale professor Zoe Chance, author and podcaster Bruce Daisley, and Strictly Come Dancing's Fleur East. There's so much in there. Let's dive in to part two. The new book, Happy Mind, Happy Life, offers 10 simple ways to feel great every day. Now, I'm really interested to talk specifically about the idea of happiness. Happiness is something I believe we all want. I'm sure that we can all think of a time in our lives when we've been really happy or a time when we've been deeply unhappy. And we can probably list people, places, moments that we can remember, maybe a photograph or a video, something where we've been really, really happy. But the thing about happiness is, you know, it's defined as an emotional state. It's characterised by a feeling of joy, contentment, satisfaction. It's not something that you just have and then that's it. You have it forever. You know, it constantly changes. So I think my first question about happiness is if it is something that's constantly changing, I think everybody wants it. I think everybody seeks it. Do you believe that with all the, the work and the research that you've done, do you think it's possible for us to be happy every single day? It depends on the definition of happiness. Mm -hmm. And I think happiness is one of those terms that we could say it to 10 different people and they'll interpret that in 10 different ways. Mm. So I do agree with you that every one of us wants to feel happy as often as we can. I think that's become a bit unfashionable these days because I think we, many of us feel that happiness is having a smile on our face the whole time. And many of us feel it's waiting for everything to be perfect in our lives where we don't have any problems at work, everyone treats us really nicely, the world is a certain way. The problem is that's never going to happen, right? These are external factors that we can't control. So therefore, I have a definition of the book as something that I call core happiness. So everything that I've tried to do in my public-facing career and frankly with my patients as well is make things practical. So sure, let's come up with a great idea. You know, happiness can seem like quite a vague concept sometimes. It's Mm. just this, it's almost like a mirage that for whatever reason, one day I might just feel happy and I want to grab it and bottle it when it's there, but the next day it's gone and it's vanished. But I don't see it like that. So I'm going to explain to you what I mean by core happiness. I've tried to develop what I think is a universal model of happiness that holds true in every situation. And as of yet, I haven't found a situation where it doesn't hold true. Although... I'm not attached to it. So I I welcome, if anyone has got a situation where it doesn't, I'm always looking to learn and get better. I'm really curious. Um, But so far, I think it holds true. And for me, core happiness, the happiness I think we all want, has these three key components. Think of it like a three-legged stool, right? Mm -hmm. Each of the legs is separate, but each of the legs is essential. And if one of those legs is weak and you're not strengthening it, your feelings of happiness will start to collapse. And the three legs are, number one, alignment. What's alignment? Alignment is when the person who you really are inside and the person who you are actually being out there in the world are one and the same. It's when your inner values and your external actions start to match up. Now, I would, I, I think, I firmly believe that many of us are living out of alignment. I've lived most of my life out of alignment. I've tried to be someone in order to get external validation from the world around me, right? I wanted to be accepted and fit in, right? And I know where that comes from in my charter. It's very, very clearly. That's a very lonely place to be, right? You're not really living your life. You're living somebody else's life. And certainly for me, when my dad died just over nine years ago, that was the moment but I started to ask myself all these existential questions. Who am I? Whose life am I really leading? Um, So that's one leg, alignment. The second leg is contentment. Contentment is the sort of things you do in your life that give you that sense of calm and peace. I think we all know naturally contentment. Yeah, I I know what things make me feel content. The third leg which I think is really important at the moment because I don't think those two legs are enough. I don't think alignment is enough mm. in and of itself. I don't think contentment is. And to come up with a complete model, I I had this final leg, which I call control. 
Now, again, control is a word that I undenied about. Yeah. Can, this word can easily be misinterpreted. This is not about controlling the world. The world is inherently uncontrollable, right? We've seen that last two years, yeah. right? You may want the world to be a certain way, but it will do what it's going to do. So it's not about controlling the world around you, because if you're waiting for that level of control in order to be happy, you're going to wait a long, long time. This is about a sense of control. What are the things that you can do day to day, like the power hour, for example, right, that give you that sense of control over your life? Because we know from the research, people who have a sense of control, they have higher motivation. They have higher academic success. They earn more money. They are healthier. They live longer and they're happier. So this sense of agency, the sense of control is really, really important. So these three legs, I think, are what core happiness is and the happiness that all of us deep down really want. And what I think or I hope is really useful for people is that you can work directly on these legs. That's, yeah, there's a lot of simple... Um, I say low-cost tools, free tools, everything in the book is free to do, yeah. that actually are going to help you work on those stools. Uh, sorry, those legs of the stool. Mm. And that's going to mean your core happiness tool is going to be much more stable. You're going to have the side effect of feeling happier more often, right? So yeah. you're not directly working on happiness. You're working on alignment, contentment, and control. The side effects, and what a beautiful side effect is that you're going to feel happier more often. Now, can I just compare core happiness to another term I have in the book that I call junk happiness? Mm -hmm. Junk happiness. I'm going to put a pin though. I'm going to come back to these three from a personal. As you're talking, I'm thinking, okay, how does that? Uh, okay, well, relate, I'll just so try and briefly summarize ahead. junk happiness. Junk happiness is the opposite of core happiness, right? Mm -hmm. So, a junk happiness habit. We all have a go-to junk happiness habit, at least one, if not more. That could be sugar it could be um alcohol it could be three hours on instagram it could be online shopping it could be gambling right something to distract ourselves something that gives us that hit often when we don't want to face the reality of life and i there's nothing necessarily wrong with a junk happiness habit the problem i think comes is when we engage in these things too often mm -hmm. We don't understand why we're engaging in them or we make the big mistake that those things are bringing us this deep level of core happiness when most of the time they're really not. Yeah. So that's how I kind of separate the two things. So mm -hmm. I do think we all want to be happy, but I put it through the lens of core happiness, yeah. which doesn't mean you have to have a smile on your face every day. You can still have high levels of core happiness and actually feel pretty sad sometime, mm. which might seem like a contradiction. No, I love this framework. I really love this framework. And the reason I wanted to put a pin in that uh, the three pillars part is because I feel like personally reflecting, I'm thinking, okay, the alignment part, I do a lot of work on this. You know, I do mentoring, I do workshops literally about this, about helping people yeah, understand probably. their core values, understand what is the most important thing, the most meaningful thing to you in your life. If you had to eliminate everything else, what remains? And so I feel like for me, the alignment part, I'm like, yes, my work aligns with what I do. Hopefully my lifestyle and my actions, my behavior align so that feels great the third one control i agree with you the word people say oh you can't control everything but again i'm a big advocate of influence i think there's so many things we can do to influence the outcome so like you say daily habits diet sleep um who you listen to what you feed your mind what you feed your body influence and control i'm like got it tick the one that i struggle with which i want to talk to you about is the contentment piece and i think that this is something that i've interrogated especially over the last few years and i think you know i'm somebody who's very ambitious i think a lot of people who listen to this show are high achieving people you know they might be uh, they're probably healthy people they invest in you know they're runners they're they're people who listen to your work and they're very yeah, self-motivated, ambitious people. I think where the contentment piece comes in for me is I know that I'm someone who feels validated by achievement. I know I'm someone who, and for a lot of people who listen, probably look left and right. And that comparison feeling of, well, I, I think the feeling of just what I'm trying to describe is on the one hand, I'm incredibly grateful for where I am, what I have, what I've achieved, but I also know I feel validated by achievement. So therefore, I'm always chasing the next achievement. I'm almost working towards the next goal, the next marathon, the next book, the next whatever. And as a result, I think for a lot of people at the moment in the world, the contentment piece yeah. is so hard because you can always go, yeah, I'm super 
abundant. I'm so lucky. I've got food in the fridge. I'm healthy. I've got friends. I've got everything. But, and with that but, I think is where people's unhappiness comes because there's always something you could look at and think, but I haven't got that yet or I haven't done this yet or, you know, bigger house, bigger car, bigger whatever. So tell us why are we all struggling with the contentment piece? I think you've just brought up such a great point and such an important point and I can resonate with that it's like personal more, therapy for more me now. <laughs> deeply than you could possibly imagine and I'll share why in just a moment the first thing I'm going to ask you is do you know where that drive to succeed comes from absolutely yeah I do I do I think you know I grew up in a family of four my um single mother did her best but you know it was very much a I guess fight for attention at home yeah. and, and I think at school my teachers didn't expect much from me or my siblings they really didn't expect much from any of us and I think it partly came from a feeling of a bit of a chip on my shoulder a bit of a well I'll show you you know mm. you don't think that I can achieve anything and actually look I'll, I'll show you all, me and all my siblings have all achieved a lot but secondly I think that if I when I am achieving things people say to you well done we congratulate people when they do good yeah. things. We congratulate our children when they come first in the race. People congratulate you when your book is a bestseller. That feeling of people saying, well done, they see you. You're offering something of value, which makes you feel worthy. And I know this is really, really deep, but I really, as I said, have interrogated this. And I understand now that that's where I get my feeling mm. of I'm doing something of value to someone. So therefore, they're going to want me around. Yeah. And that's where the opportunity, I would say, for your growth lies, right? It's in that because if we're always chasing more, and I'm speaking from experience here as well as hopefully a level of expertise, it's an unwinnable game, Mm. right? Success, defining your self-worth on success is unwinnable, right? If someone's metric was money in terms of how well they're doing in life, Well, until you're Jeff Bezos, someone's always got more than you. So it doesn't matter how much you get, someone's always getting more. And you see this commonly. I think there's a study which showed you ask anyone, a whole range of people were asked, you know, how much money would you need to feel okay about your life? Everyone Mm. said about 30% more. Doesn't matter whether you're earning 30 grand a year, 100 grand a year, a million a year. Everyone just wants that little bit more, then yeah. life would be good. So for me, it comes down to where does that desire to succeed come from? And broadening this out beyond you, right? Because mm. I'm talking to myself here as well. Is it coming from a place of lack or a place of love? Mm. A lot of our ambition comes from a place of lack. If I achieve that, I'll show them. What will it say to somebody else? But that intention never leads to true contentment, right? My story on that is immigrant parents from India to the UK, 1960s and 1970s, faced a lot of discrimination, right? Really, really struggling. They certainly, I know in many immigrant families, this is the case, but certainly in uh, Indian families that I'm experienced with, there is a huge, um, uh, huge, huge um, amount of motivation Huge amount of effort is put into academic success. Mm. Get a profession. Get yep. a profession. Yep. Because for my parents, if you do well at school, you won't have to face the same problems as we had. So what happens then, and there's a perspective here, and perspective actually is a big part of happiness. Knowing that you can take different perspectives on the same situation is a skill I only developed in the last few years, but as the last few years, which is probably been at the heart of why I feel so content and calm these days in a way that I never used to. But if I'd come home from school with 19 out of 20, it was always, well, why didn't you get 20? If I came home with 99%, why didn't you get 100%? If I was second in the class ever, well, who came top? Why didn't you come top? So here's the thing. I, when I was writing the books, I'd be very open about a lot of my experiences in a way that I never could have done in previous books. I would have been too scared of judgments, mm. but I've really made peace with a lot of my inner parts now and I feel I'm able to share them openly. I said to mum recently, hey mum, why did you say that to me when I was a little boy? She said, well, you know, I just want you to be the best that you could be. I know how capable you are. So what needs to be the best you could be? I didn't do the same with your brother. He has different skills and different capabilities. So from mum and dad's perspective, they're doing it from a place of love. 
They're wanting me to be the best that I can be. The problem is Little Rongen <laughs> takes on the idea, which I only realized in the last five or six years, that I'm only worthy, I'm only enough when I get top marks, yeah. right? And so therefore, yeah, on the outside, things look great. You can get straight A's, go to medical school, get a nice job, have all the trappings and in inverted commas of success, but you still don't feel good inside because there's always something more you could be doing, even in a lot of my public facing career. Yeah. You know, seven years now since I first came on uh, television on BBC One in 2015 with Doctor in the House. Even then, I was driven by external validation. Sure, I loved helping people and I'm driven. I'm, I think I'm a compassionate person who really likes to help others. But I also liked the plaudits. Yeah. It made me feel good. Right? Now, as I've made peace with that, and as I've actually done the work to realize, actually, no, my external success is says nothing about my self-worth as a human being. Mm. Interesting, as we talk now, this is my fifth book in five years, right? I promise you, this is the only book where I've not been anxious about the launch. The first four in the weeks leading to it, you've got little bit nervous um you know what's going to happen gonna do as well as the last one yeah the exactly growing. The pressure, pressure. Yeah. problem is is when my first book huge international bestseller number one in all books on amazon right you got a problem that's the new bar yep so suddenly now i'm lucky that all books have have gone to that metric but here's the problem is that they did second book third book and fourth but all got there as well but the feeling of joy went down each time right right i tell you it sounds amazing first time when, when I was number one in all books, I tell you, my mates from uni were WhatsApping me, yeah. like, mate, this is unbelievable. I was like, yeah, I can't believe it, you know. Great, real artificial elevation. Mm. Second time it happens, yeah, yeah, cool, really, really good. Not quite as good as the first time, but still really good. Third time. It's an expectation now. People go. Okay, yeah. cool, you know, almost like that's the norm. Yeah. Fourth time, when it happened last year, just relief that it bloody happens. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, not, he's got another one. <laughs> not even joy. No, no. But and I and I say this. You know, I would have felt too shy to to to, to sort of say this publicly a few years ago. You think who can relate to that? You know, nice problem to have, mate. No, no. This is real, right? This is inner discontentment. Many people have to get these high levels of success to realize actually they weren't the answer. I interviewed Johnny Wilkerson last week for my podcast. I'm not put it out yet. Johnny Wilkerson. If people don't know. Um, you know, he was an England rugby uh, player. In the last minute of the World Cup final in 2003, he he kicks the winning goal that gives England the World Cup, right? He achieved all of his dreams by the age of 24. And I have a section in chapter one saying your dreams won't make you happy mm. if you're not careful, right? And the publisher actually said, wrong, and this is pretty negative. I said, no, I'm keeping this in because I really mean it. Many of us are chasing the wrong dreams, and he describes that the minute the ball left his foot, he starts to go down and feel low. They win the World Cup, he feels nothing inside. Wakes up the following day feeling empty and lonely, right? And you'll see this story playing out over and over again. I had this beautiful conversation with someone called Pippa Grange on my podcast, who was a psychologist with the England football team for many years. And she has this gorgeous concept called winning shallow and winning deep. Mm. Right? So the question is, how do you want to win in life? Do you want to win shallow from that place of lack? I'm going to show people, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to prove that I am worth something, which again, I get it. I've had that, but it comes from a place of lack. When you realize actually, no, I, the, the drive now to do well is still there, but it's different. Yeah. Like the reason I'm relaxed about this book is... I know that this is the best book I've ever written. I know that this is literally, I think it's a fantastic book that will help anyone. And I say that with zero arrogance. That's honestly how I genuinely feel about it. Whether it does well or not, it's no reflection of who I am. And that feeling doesn't change. That You're doesn't not change. For it, yeah. You know, having, for me, having children has been wonderful about this because my kids do not care whether daddy sells one copy of the book or a hundred thousand copies. Yeah, my son does not care what it's, I'm doing. It's a self-created narrative in your head and my head, yeah. right? And for many of us, that narrative keeps us going. We think we need it for success, mm. but actually a lot of the research is saying now we don't. Yeah. We don't need it. We think we do. And then let's not beat ourselves up, right? You're very successful. You're doing wonderful things. You're helping so many people, right? It served you.
often when people think about minimalism, that's the first thing they think of is, okay, you know, an empty-ish looking space, maybe white walls, you know, maybe just one chair, maybe a a lamp. And the idea of minimalism, often for a lot of people, they think about getting rid of possessions, living with minimal or living with only what's essential. And so the possessions thing, I think, is I guess I'd love to explore that a little bit because as someone who loves the attitude of the minimalist approach and less is better and having less uh, distractions, less worries, less things on my to-do list, less rushing. I always say I want, you know, more freedom, more time, more living. But the problem is, Chris, I like stuff. I like shopping. I like shopping. I like shopping online. I like walking around shops. I like buying on clothes. I like buying a new pair of shoes or a new pair of sandals when I'm going on a trip. So I feel like there's this definite conflict, which I'm sure a lot of other people have around the concept of minimalism and the reality if you like stuff. So yeah, as consumers, I guess what's going on there with the possessions? Why do we like to buy and consume? And why does it feel so good? Yeah, uh, it's uh, uh, you know I'm not immune, Adrian. I <laughs> I like stuff too, right? And again, it's it's because it's so individualistic. I've designed the way I live, the way I work, the way I consume, adverts, buy stuff. It's designed for me based on what I want to achieve in in my my present time and the future as well. So, of course, I I had a huge collection of Converse trainers, right? And you know, like almost every color of the rainbow. But I never really wore many of them. I didn't really move too far outside of uh, a few. Um, and so letting go of those uh, trainers made me kind of think, well, in the future, how many do I need? And so it became a case of what do I need to achieve the things that I want to achieve rather than what do I want just because I can? Yeah. And so it came, it came about what stuff do I need around me to be able to live the way I want to live and what stuff really adds value to my life so even things like paintings or books or things like that if it added value to my life and I really got value and and love from it oh yeah I kept it and I still buy books and you know I still have to buy shirts and things like that but I'm more conscious now about where I buy stuff and how much of it I buy so I don't have all white walls i don't have just one chair or you know no mattress or just sleep on the floor i have generally you know what most other people have i have a bed i have sofas i have a tv i have you know tech but i don't have excess mm. and so i have enough to be able to do the things i want to do and need to do and um and the rest of it I can bring in, but then also potentially let it go if it's not being used. So um, I have a, a couple of rules where I, I tend to bring stuff in over the time. So uh, clothes, again, for example, because I know you're a clothes fan, right? So <laughs> if I bring in a shirt and then after a couple of months, I think I really don't think that fits well or you know, body composition's changed or fashion show, whatever it is, I'll let it go. So rather than potentially creating a scenario into the future but I say well if I keep it just in case I do xyz or I go here or I lose weight or whatever I kind of preempt that and I let someone else have it and that kind of uh, feeling of letting someone else have my stuff that I'm not using and they can get love from it mm. gives me just as much value as going out and buying something so rather than chasing that dopamine high which is that shopper's high that you yeah. might be searching for um it's almost for me it's the reverse so i get my dopamine high by adding value to people's lives and whether that is with a thing or whether that is with doing a talk or helping out with coaching or something i get my highs in a slightly different way and so um and it's interesting because once you start decluttering and you might have found this it, it can become quite addictive because yeah. sometimes if you if you sell stuff and you start to see a little bit of pocket money coming in, you're like, oh, what else can I sell? <laughs> what else am I not using? And so actually that same dopamine hit that we get with the shoppers high with when someone likes our Instagram post, when someone follows us on social media, it's the same chemical cocktail. So we get the same feeling potentially by doing it in reverse. So that is how yeah. I kind of look after 
stuff. But I, yeah, I don't have a number. Some people like to have 50 things only, but um, that's their version of minimalism. That's their way of living. And yeah. But I'm just a bit of a normal guy, really, just with just minimalist slant, so I don't have a number. I like I like that the, the dopamine part potentially is what's happening there when you do get that urge or feeling of oh it's nice to just yeah walk around the shops and buy something or it's nice to scroll through a website online and order something and click click and you know it's going to arrive tomorrow like you say that dopamine hit yeah. that we get is so yeah. it's so real you know it's a real feeling it's chemical in the brain it's a real addiction for a lot of people and actually when you just described then about uh, how good it feels to get rid of stuff the the only time in my life that really that really stands out uh, that I can remember is when before I moved into this house I'd lived in the previous house for about eight or nine years and that's where my son was born yeah. and that's where I'd had a lot of things happen in my life which, as I'm sure in, in nine years lots does happen and in yeah. that time I'd I'd been trying to have another baby and I'd actually had a miscarriage and I remember I had so wow. much I had so much uh maternity clothes most of them were quite new some of them still had tags on actually maternity dress or maternity things that like you say I was keeping because one day I was thinking when I'm pregnant yeah. again I'm going to wear that yeah. so I kept all these things and I also had uh, a pushchair that I'd, I think I'd actually won it it's quite funny but I'd won this mama's and papa's pushchair in a competition so it was still in the box yeah. unopened and I kept it yeah. because as I say every year I was hoping I'm going to get pregnant and then yeah. when we moved out of that house and moved to this house, obviously when you're moving, I think that's the, probably the time when most people declutter their lives. So you go through, yeah, yeah, the drawers and the books and you throw away things. And and I had a real moment where I sat with this stuff and I thought, are you going to take this with you to the new house? You mm. know, along with the hope and the, uh, yeah, yeah. I guess, the yeah, the hope that one day you'll need it. Or, as you just described, is there somebody who would really benefit from this? You know, could somebody, for example, if you donated this to a charity shop, could somebody who maybe already is pregnant and maybe mm. can't afford to go and buy a brand new mama's and papa's pushchair, maybe they're going to get the, you know, maybe they'll really need it. Or you could donate it to a women's shelter or a nursery. So that's yeah. what I did. And I, you know, it wasn't an easy thing to do because I do think it was quite symbolic, you know, at the time of me thinking maybe part of me was kind of giving up a little bit on that future dream. But what I told myself was actually, if in the future you're blessed and enough to be pregnant again, you will be able to go and buy what you need and you're fortunate enough mm. that you'll be able to get it. So I gave that stuff away and, you know, I didn't, you know, never thought about it again, really. I didn't regret it. I didn't, I certainly didn't miss it. And actually, yeah. I think, you know, it's not an easy thing to you know, on a, I guess on a daily or a weekly basis, we probably live with the things that we live with. And like I said, I love, you know, the the books that I've that I've got on the shelf or I love having, I've got a lot of plants in the house or yeah, like you said, mm. I, might, like, I like dresses and I buy things. But actually that was a time when keeping something wasn't actually serving me or making me feel good, actually. I think it was kind of a reminder actually of, of you know, what a future life that I didn't have and giving it away really did strangely feel really good. Well, there you go. I mean, what a wonderful story, and and it's interesting that you've you picked up on the, the the symbolism of something, and how we put so much value on you know, potential like inanimate objects, and they become way more valuable than potentially they ever were. So there's there's loads and loads of psychology and experiments around the value of items and there's one that people can look up around the value of basketball tickets so this was done in a like a an experiment in america where someone had bought basketball tickets to like a college final and because they were theirs because they had ownership of those things the value to them increased massively but when they were said oh can you sell them now they said well yeah i'd, I'd sell them but i'd sell them for a huge profit because they were worth more to that one person but to everybody else they were just worth the ticket value mm. but to that one person who took ownership of those things they were worth so much more and you know i i try and and i try and break it down in, into a little bit of a little bit of fun a little bit of light-heartedness because we can come across a lot of emotional attachment to things and you know there's a there's a story and this is Everything I write in this book is 100% true, right? Even the failings and the, the comedy that at that time didn't feel funny, but you look back on it, it is kind of funny. I had two Trilby hats, right? <laughs> and I thought, when I go travelling, I, I see myself in New Orleans in a jazz bar having a cocktail with my Trilby hat on, right? So I've, I have 
manifested, well, not manifested it, I created from nowhere this picture of me, right? Mm. And so I thought, right, when I pack my stuff, I'm going to take these trilby hats. And my partner's looking at me going, you ain't worn them hats for about 10 years. <laughs> I've never seen you wear a hat before. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I've never seen you wear that hat, right? <laughs> it's, got a little, it's got a little fake carnation in the side of it and a, a feather. And I was like, yeah, but you know. Was this early, you know, was this early 2000s, 2010? <laughs> <laughs> it was, well, that's when I bought it, yeah. I think. Um, and I, I kind of looked at these things it, with a, kind of a, a little bit of a rational mindset. I'm like, but, but am I really going to wear these things? Like, does it really matter if I go to the same jazz bar, sip a cocktail, and I'm not wearing a hat? Like, is, is my experience going to be any less if I don't take the hat? And generally, Adrian, it was for hours I was sitting with my backpack going, what can I get rid of so I can put my hats in? <laughs> what can I, can I... What about the first aid kit? If I don't take the first <laughs> Do aid kit... Do you need that? I can, yeah, yeah, right? And in the end, I left them behind. And, we, you know, within minutes, I'd forgotten about them. And, mm. you know, it didn't, it, it didn't um, affect my experience at all. But it was just interesting to note that I had that attachment to these hats because I'd pictured myself in this position. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Perfect segue, actually, into the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about. And it's a line in your book, which I highlighted, underlined, that says, to connect with many people, connect with one. And of course, when we're talking about influence, people do think about, okay, connecting or influence as to, to mass, you know, to, to a lot of people, we might, we might picture somebody on a stage, you know, speaking to loads and loads of people, but actually that really stood out to me. So what does, what does that mean when you wrote that? Why is individual connection so important when it comes to influence? It's interesting that we can feel other people's vicarious connection. So when somebody is connecting with us, like you and I talking one-on-one, -on -one, and I feel and appreciate the attention that you're paying to me, but people listening to us having this intimate conversation, they can feel connected with you and with me as well. And this also happens from the stage where when you or I or any performer or speaker is up there talking to a group of people, we can connect with them better by focusing one at a time on specific individuals, and then other people will feel it rather than scanning the audience. And what we can practice this, so most of us aren't on stage that, that often, but we can practice it in any group conversation where we can notice rather than looking around at everybody, we're typically just making eye contact with one or a few people in the group. We can do it more mindfully where we focus on one person at a time, making eye contact, connecting with them. We can use their name, you know, smile, ask them a question, and then we shift our attention to someone else. What we'll also notice when we're more mindful about our behavior, our unconscious behavior in these group conversations is that it's not random who we're paying attention to, and it's definitely not equal who we're mm. paying attention to. So there's some people that we like better, some people that have more power, some people that we just feel more drawn to. And when we're more mindful of it, we can be intentionally connecting with the other people who are invisible in the group if we're not mindful about it. Oh my gosh, Zoe, as you were talking, one person came into mind and I don't want to say this person's name because any friends will know exactly who I'm talking about. But this is a friend of mine who is a single guy and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying, but if I was just to show you a photo of this guy, you would be like, okay, cool. You know, he's a 
average looking guy and maybe quite forgettable but if you meet him he's incredibly charismatic people i've i know female friends that have met him and after 15 minutes in like a group setting like a party or at a bar they are just kind of in this in his spell they're under his spell and i've seen it happen so many times and they i've heard two people have said to me i think one is the eye contact, like you said, he has this kind of intense eye contact where he just, you feel like this his, his attention is just on you. There could be a hundred people in the room, but you, his attention is just on you. And one friend actually said to me, she said, yeah, he makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. And yeah. I've seen this spell, as I said, you know, he is notorious for like dating and people are always like, oh gosh, like keep your friends away from him <laughs> because <laughs> they know they're going to be full under this spell. So I don't know, is that something that he... I don't think he's ever kind of, you know, honed this skill. I think it's kind of just his his way. And I guess he has a very high success rate, so he probably just keeps repeating it. But um, yeah, do you think that anyone listening who thinks, okay, I'm not good in those settings, maybe I'm not good at meeting new people, maybe I'm not good on a first date or an interview, like what can they do to, yeah, I guess, have a little bit of his magic? Exactly what you're talking about where you focus on one person at a time you make eye contact you really really give them your attention in a generous way it's not in a selfish way right it's in a generous way and that's what's compelling and charming and charismatic about it and a lot of us have met men who know how to do this whether they've practiced it or whether for some people it's natural and um, i had the assumption that this is a guy thing and that for women what matters so much more is physically how attractive you are right if and i'm just being stereotypical and talking about straight relationships and i think queer women are not as um as picky as straight men are about physical attractiveness hmm. but i got to have this experience that completely blew my mind and absolutely changed all of those misguided assumptions that i had where i was doing this Oh, a long-term workshop with this organization in New York City that's called the School for Womanly Arts. And I had met this woman who was so charismatic and compelling and so happy and having so much fun. And she talked about this group of women she hung out with. And these women are, there are thousands of women and they're all over the world, not just in New York, it's headquartered there. And they're women of all shapes, sizes, ages, colors, life paths. Many of them are really wacky. But what I got to see was women in not just their 40s and 50s, but even 60s and 70s, full of life and so playful. And many of them um, not being attractive in a standard kind of way, um, like, you know, all different body shapes, for example, but being so happy with themselves and so attentive to other people that the, so many of these women can just walk into a room and charm absolutely anybody. And the first time I noticed this was when I was hanging out with a group of women from this group and there was a woman in her 50s who was very short overweight and funny but not someone that i would imagine if i were straight man in my 30s being attracted to not the kind of western beauty standard idealized yeah, or we're just, kind of shown to be yeah the kind of not the supermodel right very much not the supermodel and um and we're walking out <laughs> we're walking out of this restaurant and she sees this guy who's very well dressed european looking super well groomed and just incredibly hot in his 30s and and she goes up to him as he's walking in the door total stranger and she cups his face in her hands and she says oh you must be so cold and i was <laughs> shocked because it's winter time he's just and i was i was so shocked and he looked at her and just like you said he's just instantly <laughs> under her spell and then they end up hanging out and i don't know what happened in the evening after that but but for a long time after that while i was still at the bar he's just entranced by her and just wanting to talk with her and he's just delighting in her attention wow yeah so much in there and so much more to it than as you said you know what's impacting our 
you know, from romantic relationships to friendships to professional settings. And actually, one question that I have for you, Zoe, is a question kind of on behalf of a friend, actually, somebody that I've worked with in the past. And her question was, how do you talk in a way that other people will listen? And and the example that she often gives is a group setting in, in a work environment. So uh, a very important meeting, maybe there's eight or 10 other people in the meeting. And there's typically two or three people that will speak the most, they will dominate the conversation. And she said that there's other people who they kind of sit back, they don't say much, but when they do, everyone listens and no one talks over them or interrupts them. But she said she feels incredibly frustrated and she doesn't want to just pin it down to, oh, you know, this is a stereotypical workroom thing because I'm a female and the men don't listen. But she's like, I've noticed when I talk, they will cut me off mid-sentence. They will talk over me. Sometimes they'll just kind of hurry, hurry me along in this way that's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And they'll move on to the next thing. And then she said, when other people are speaking, they're not interrupted. Everybody listens. So yeah, what's going on there? And what are the things that we can do ourselves to speak and to ask questions and to listen in, in a way that it enables other people to listen when we talk? I feel so passionate and so aggravated by this topic <laughs> that we could talk <laughs> yeah. at least for a whole entire hour about this one thing. First of all, she is right that women empirically are interrupted more often than men are. And for men, it matters a lot more wh what position in a hierarchy they're in. So sometimes men in lower roles in the hierarchy might get interrupted, but men who are in positions of power will almost never be interrupted, while even women in positions of power will be interrupted. Mm. So this is true. However, there are lots of things that we can do. And one of the first things is we can protect each other even better than we can protect ourselves. And we're talking about women and gender differences here, but this is applicable for anyone who is in a group of people that has mm, less airtime or mm. less share of voice than they might. So it might have to do with your position in the hierarchy, like we talked about, it might have to do with your race, it might have to do with you being a non-native speaker, it could be, have to do with your age, anything. When you're in that group, along with other people, my best advice is for you to talk with other people in the group and your group, your minority, and you specifically have a plan to amplify each other. Mm. So when it's not just that when you speak up, you try to have other people not interrupt you. But when you hear someone else in your group, your your peeps, your posse, they speak up, they get interrupted. And you say, I wanted to hear what Adrian was saying, right? Or you come back to it, you know, like Adrian was saying a minute ago, or tell me more about that, Adrian, mm. right? And this is what I've heard a number of women on board say that when women on women are on boards, obviously, these are very senior women, they're getting interrupted just like women at every other level, but it's especially helpful when they can amplify and support each other when they have two or especially when they have three. And so all of us can do this. The second thing is to, for people who are in positions of power to point out when the interrupting is happening. It's not easy and mm. usually not advisable for some, like, you know, your junior person in the room it's really not cool for you to be like, um, excuse me, did you notice that you just interrupted her, right? <laughs> but, yeah. but if you're the boss, you can do that and it's helpful. And then when you are, we're talking about you individually, each of us, couple of things that you can do. First of all, it helps a lot to speak up early. And like we were talking about earlier in a group conversation where each of us naturally makes eye contact only with a small number of people in that group. Maybe it's the powerful people, people we like, whoever it is. Everyone else seems invisible. But if you speak up early in a meeting, then you're not invisible and people notice you and you and everyone else registers your presence. And when you speak up early, it doesn't mean that you have to say something brilliant. So this was the best advice I've gotten from my worst ever boss, was be one of the first three people in a meeting to speak. That was when I was a junior manager at Mattel. 
And he told me, which is, I've subsequently learned to be absolutely true. You can ask a question. You can speak up during the small talk that happens before the actual meeting begins, mm. or you can speak up just to voice support for something someone else had said, or you can ask a question. You don't have to be brilliant. You just have to be early. And then people listen to you more. And then the final thing that I'll say is that a lot of us, and this is more women than men, but many, many of us use diminishers when we talk and we use them specifically in a preamble before we say the thing. Like, I just want I, I kind of thought like, I, I could be wrong, but um, I don't know if this is, and all of those preambles are really hard to listen to. Mm. And they tune people out. We're doing it so that we're not a threat. And we're actually trying to build rapport and have people like us, but it doesn't work that way. So we can eliminate the diminisher. We can just say the thing. Or we can shift a statement to a question. Questions get attention. So these are just some ideas for your friend. And just tell your friend, I really feel for her. I'm someone who, you know, I've said this so many times in this podcast, but I love people. It is what ties together everything in my life, the work that I do, you know, what gives me meaning and purpose, what motivates me. I I know that for me during lockdown, you know, even just, just the physical proximity, the lack of proximity being by myself in my house, it just was not good for me. I don't enjoy that. I love to be with others. Um, and so I definitely want to dive in there in terms of, yeah, how important actually because we hear it so often don't we you know relationships the most important thing in your life and you know we've got to be connected to others but what does I suppose what does that actually mean is it just for example quality versus quantity so if you've got one really strong relationship in your life maybe a spouse a partner maybe a friend or maybe you don't have that but you have 20 good friends you know people that you see and speak to regularly is there again like data to support which which is better yeah, um, the, the the most interesting thing about this is you can look into this, whether it's people recovering from depression, people who who are recovering from major heart operations, and or or you could look at it into to more broader just perspectives of of people going about their everyday life, and the biggest predictor of of recovery from those things is how many groups people report feeling part of. Now, sometimes in that research, um, you can count your family as part of those groups. But um, the interesting thing, it's about groups and it's about group identity. So that might be that, you know, you're a runner. Maybe it's about, um, okay, so I'm counting my running club as part of that. Or maybe you, you run alone and you might say to yourself, you know what, I'm going to turn my individual running into feeling part of a group, a running group. Um, and But it's the groups. And I'll give you probably the most pointed expression of it. There's a guy called, uh, there's a guy who wrote a book in uh, about 20 years ago in the US, a guy called Robert Putnam. It became a massive seller in the US. It was called Bowling Alone. But he said something that I think is the, the most potent way to think about this. He said, if you smoke 15 cigarettes a day, but you're also not a member of a group, I would advise you to join a group before you give up smoking. And what he meant by that is that the evidence for joining a group is so powerful that it extends your life more than um, giving up smoking will, will extend your life. And I think that's the critical thing. So look, that might be that you've got a group of old school friends or college friends and you get together once every six months or you know you've got a group of people that you feel connected to in some capacity and it's about okay how can I um how can I maintain that friendship you know maybe it's a group of old colleagues or people that you worked on with a project or it doesn't have to be necessarily about work but trying to focus your attention on servicing the groups that you're part of is really critical yeah. And again, as an extrovert, you know, that's music to my ears, but I know friends, people, colleagues who are introverts and who kind of, even just the word groups turns them away. They're like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't like that. And for example, I was talking to a friend this week about 
mental health and well-being within work setting and within you know how it's how it's playing out for a lot of big organizations where they've still got lots of people working from home and the fact they're trying to get people back in the office and people just tend to focus on productivity output team you know connection in terms of i guess kind of this i don't know it kind of seems quite surface in the you know, team building but actually you know, my argument was, again, of course, saying bringing people together is so much more important than just, yeah, everyone's sitting in the same office. It is about those small everyday interactions that you might have when you're getting your lunch or when you are chatting to somebody, uh, you know, in the hallway or when you go uh, into after the meeting, as you're leaving the meeting, you know, there's different different interactions with different people. And I was speaking specifically about new joiners of companies and also younger people like maybe graduates and talking about their opportunity for upward mobility and the fact that if you can get mentorship or learn from more senior people within your organization that is going to benefit you from a career perspective but it's also going to benefit you emotionally uh, socially to yeah be around those people like literally be around them so we were talking about this and she was saying that actually a lot of the introverts in her company, she said they don't, they're so resistant to coming back into the office because they kind of, they just, their argument is I like doing my work at home. Like for example, uh, some tech engineers, they're like, I can sit on my laptop. I can get the work done. It does not matter whether I'm in the office or in my house. I just need to do the work. And actually I don't want to come to the run club. I don't want to chat to people about their <laughs> weekend or their kids. I don't care about those people at work. I don't know them. I just want to stay at home and do my work. So she's really having this battle trying to get these, you know, more introverted people to to kind of prove to them, I suppose, that there is a benefit in them coming in because at the moment, if they're if given the choice, they're not coming. So yeah, what do you think about that, Bruce? Yeah, well, look, you know, I think um, we're definitely going through a period where our relationship with work is changing. And, you know, I would say it's possibly moving from something that used to be like our relationship with school, which was, you know, sort of a community base where you'd have lots of friends. There was often sort of an exciting chat where the people you socialised with were also the people that you studied with. And we're moving to a relationship closer to that with college or university, where the people on our course generally weren't our best friends. We often didn't used to socialise with the people on our course that much. Um, we used to work when and where we wanted, and sometimes that was working at 9pm on a Wednesday night in the library. And sometimes that was, you know, that was at our desks at sort of... 9am and, and just working in a more routine way. So we were more self-determining and we're moving from one to the other. And what it can mean is that work will be less of our identity than it was in the previous era. But that doesn't delete the fact that having connection to groups is a really important thing. So whereas in the old days, work might have provided some of that. Now we need to say to ourselves, OK, work's not providing that with me anymore. You know, whether you used to sit in a bank of desks and everyone used to take it in turn to make tea or whether you used to go for a drink after work. And, and actually it was the humour and the interaction that you achieved there that sort of filled you with it filled you with happiness as you went towards your weekend. If you're not getting that sustenance right now from work, and it's not a bad thing if you're not, you need to think about how you are getting it elsewhere in your life. Yeah, because I guess that's the point, isn't it? If you're not getting it there and you have an active social life and you replace it with other things and you play team sports, then yeah, you're probably less inclined to put effort, time and energy into those more professional relationships. But I think the, my fear, as you just pointed out, actually, is I think a lot of people, if you take that away, they probably don't have a lot of group interactions. They might have one or two friends that they meet up with, but I just, yeah, my fear is that actually people are just going to become more and more and more siloed and more and more introverted if they're already introverted. And not to say that being an introvert is a bad thing, because again, I think I think sometimes... Uh, extroverts get rewarded and and it shouldn't be the case but yeah I don't know as someone who I guess wants to encourage people to take care of their emotional well-being their physical and mental well-being it's so connected to others we do not live our lives alone and so I think yeah if, if people could really understand the as you said there's so much science and data out there that basically says our lives our physical lives in terms of how long we live the quality of our lives and our health, even even health data such as our blood pressure, our heart rate, all of these things are impacted negatively when we do not spend time with other humans. It's really not good for us at all. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, to, to double down on exactly what you say there, sometimes we might think, oh, does this mean this is going to be a life filled with small talk and meeting strangers? Not at all. You know, this is about, OK, building, drawing people into your inner circle. I chatted to I, I, on my podcast, I chatted to someone on a recent episode who'd written a book about how men in particular over the age of 35, 40, stop making friends. Now, you know, while you, your listeners might not be in that cohort themselves, they might have someone in their life who do, falls into that, whether that's a partner or a father or someone like that. And and recognising that, that men in particular start separating themselves from those around them is a really important understanding of how the impact that that can have on what their well-being but also the well-being of the people in their lives so i think knowing that we've got a instinct to maybe dial down these connections and knowing that you know we should be aware of that and conscious of that and adapt to that i think it's a really important consideration for me it's where resilience lies so you know as i was putting the book together um the the book, you know, for me is about demystifying what we get wrong about resilience, but it's also trying to work out where we can, any of us can find it. And, and that might be, you know, unlocking resilience for ourselves or for our friends. Yeah, for others, you're right. I guess that's where that, that when you were describing that, I was thinking of the grumpy old man. So, it's right, I've got friends who will say that about their husbands, actually. They'll say, you know, their husbands don't necessarily make the effort to create social plans with their other friends. And yeah, one friend in particular, she's kind of like, you know, she said if she didn't organise for them to go to places and meet with friends and meet for dinner, she's like, he apparently is quite happy to just never see anyone <laughs> it's yeah. kind of yeah it does you can see how actually even though we joke about it as you go into older age yeah it's, it's important that we keep those relationships going absolutely it's, it's why there's a mental health crisis for, for for that group you know the the reason why look not to be stuck about it but the reason why uh, that group is the most heavily afflicted with with suicide is because you know that group experiences the greatest levels of isolation so you know none of these things are trivial really When I speak to people, often they say, you know, whether it's about motivation, whether it's about ambition, I speak to women and I encourage them to do more and, you know, to really just not limit themselves. However, energy management comes up again and again, whether that's in the form of burnout, whether it's about just emotional energy and saying, well, you know, trying to give to so many different things. So how do you approach, especially in this busy time, you know, strictly starting, you've got all these other things as well. How do you approach yeah, your own personal energy management? It's quite funny because I always say to people, they're like, how are you still awake? Like there's times where after I do the radio show, I wake up at half four every morning and a lot of the time I'll be doing something else after the radio show's finished. And when I'm on that second job, people are like, Flo, you've been up 12 hours. Like, how are you still going? And I always kind of look at myself, and this is really weird, like a charger, like a phone. <laughs> so like naps are everything, mm. everything. I could not survive without a nap. I just have to recharge as and when. So if I'm going somewhere, if I'm traveling to the next job and it's like an hour to that job, then I know, oh, I can have a little power nap. A power hour. Yes. Shall we call it? I have a little power nap. And then that's it. I'm back and I've got the energy and I just kind of function that way. And then I've had to force myself to go to bed early because I'm naturally a night owl. I can stay up till four or five in the morning and now I'm getting up at that time. <laughs> so when it gets to 9 p.m., I just have to take myself to bed. Yeah. And um, that's just getting more and more, I guess, natural now. My body just feels, it winds down at about 9 p.m. Right, so, so yeah, I was going to say, because I'm also a big fan of the early bedtimes. People might laugh and think that it's boring, but I'm like, you know what? It's a game changer, especially, as you say, if you're getting up early. But what about what about more, I suppose, like emotional energy? So, for example, you know, we all have personal relationships. We have our work. And so I find for a lot of my friends, especially, especially women, I don't want to just, you know, discount men from this. But often they're like, you know what? It's hard to even the weekend, let's say you've got lots of social plans or giving the time and energy to your to your partner, to your husband, to your spouse, as well as being like, yeah, I'm career ambitious. I'm going to say yes to the job i'm gonna be doing all the things how do you yeah i guess carve out space and energy to make sure there's there's room for other things yeah it's interesting because i think 
we all, once we get into an industry or we're like, we're finding our feet, we want to say yes to everything. Mm. And I'm definitely guilty of that. I was in a place a few years back where any job that would come in, I'd be like, yes, 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 yes. And then I started to get really burnt out. And my mum used to say to me, you're not a robot, you're not a robot. And I'd be like, do you know what, mum, you're actually right. I'm not a machine, I can't do it all. So I had to then just turn things down and actually manage things. And the thing is, it's easier said than done because when you're trying to establish yourself in an industry, you almost have to do all of that. You have to like lay the groundwork. But fortunately, I, I think now I'm in a place where I can be a lot more selective. And you know, there's crazy jobs that maybe six, seven years ago, I would never say no to that now I'm like, no, I'd actually rather go on holiday with my husband that week. Or actually, no, I just want to have time in my house and just sit in my garden for a weekend and things like that. And I think even when it comes to friendships and social engagements, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, I was supposed to go for a lunch and it had been such a busy week and I'd been gigging up and down the country. And then it came to the day where we had the lunch and I had family staying as well from abroad and I hadn't seen them because I've been so busy that week. And I was just honest. And I just, I sent my friends a voice note and I just said, guys, I am so tired. Mm. I was like, I've had such a busy week. My family are staying with me. I haven't even seen them. I just need to be home. I need to be with them today. I'm really sorry that I can't come. And they just respected the honesty. And we're just like, you know, we'll meet another time. And a lot of the time you feel like, you yeah, a lot of pressure that you can't say no and you have to turn up. But actually I think people more often than not just respect that you're honest. <laughs> you know, if they're true friends, they'll catch up with you another time. You know, yeah. it's not the be all and end all. Yeah, it's really important to, for people, I think it's really important for people to hear what you've said about laying the groundwork because I hear so many people giving advice to, as I said, young, it's often like women in business things where people are starting out and they're saying, you know, work-life balance and avoid burnout. And they're saying, you know, you don't have to be everywhere and do everything, which I do agree with. But as you said, when you're new in an industry, whether that's the music industry, whether that's uh, hospitality, whether that's corporate world, banking, whatever it is, I do think those early years, those fundamental foundational times, you do have to go above and beyond. You do have to put in the extra mile again and again and again. And later on, as you just described, when you get to a place, hopefully, where you have had some success, you've you've maybe established yourself, people understand and know the work that you do, then it's like, okay, cool, like you said, take the holiday, you know, have the weekend. But I think it's it's a really complex one, I think, for people to get their head around saying, you know, we've got this real backlash against hustle culture and we don't want people to be burnt out, which I agree with. But I also think it's, it's not really telling people the truth unless you say to them, look, no. how many years did you just have to roll up your sleeves and just keep on going um, before you could get to this stage of your career in your life? Yeah, that, those are the facts. I remember I was doing a job not too long ago, like last week, and the makeup artist who was doing my makeup said, you know, this year I'm actually missing a few weeks of my job that, I, that I've been doing for nine years and I've never, ever missed a week. And she said, you know, it's just, I need to go and see my family. And, and I'm in a position now where I can do that. But again, I mean, she's hustled for nine years <laughs> and never missed, never missed a job. So it's like, you know... I guess it depends on the individual. I think if it's if it's affecting your health, if it's affecting your mental health, then definitely take a break. But I think if you've got the energy and you can just hustle for that for that time to lay the foundation to then reap the rewards in the future. I mean, that's what most people will be doing. Mm. Yeah, I think so. And as I said, I mean, it's three years since we spoke and you have not stopped. I mean, she does not <laughs> stop. Honestly, it's so impressive. It's so amazing to see. And so let's talk about, as I mentioned, your fitness routine. Last time you came on the show, you said, you know, you've always loved to work out. You love to break a sweat. It kind of gets you pumped you know wakes you up and of course when you've you know when you've danced when you've toured you're used to using your body and and the physicality of that but now as I said people can work out with you they can follow your workouts so yeah what's that journey been like and tell us about why you joined the sweat app so exciting so yeah as you know you know you've got evidence literally three years ago <laughs> I spoke to you about this I've always been so passionate about fitness and I used to train my friends like in the park or like my friends would come round and we'd do like a little session in the living room and I would just do it like for free just because I just loved doing it. I loved training people and 
just seeing the effect it would have on people's lives and the energy and things like that. So I decided to start studying and actually get my qualification as a PT, as a personal trainer. And then I got approached by Sweat, the fitness app. And I'd known about it, of course, for years, because I follow all the trainers. I've worked out using fitness apps for years. And um, when I got approached, I thought, this, this isn't actually happening, is it really? And they said, yeah, we need you to come out to Utah and film your own program. So I've worked with the team and I, I spoke about how HIT was my favorite style of, of working out. So put together a six week program and went out to Utah and filmed it in a week. And it was crazy. It was like three, four workouts a day. Okay, I was whoa, burning. Whoa, whoa. I'm gonna yeah. jump. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in there because, as many of the listeners will know, I am also on a fitness app, and so there's very different yes. to saying. It's very different to saying I like hit and I like to train hit to coaching hit when <laughs> yeah. you are filming and those cameras are on and you're talking, you're cueing, you're coaching. This is the exercise that's coming next. Yeah. You're counting down, and you are doing those workouts like you just described. Sometimes four workouts in a day, back to back, yeah. and you crawl out of that studio it's oh, it's amazing do. but it's such hard work so hard like i had my apple watch on the entire time because i was like i need to track what i'm going to be burning and it was over a thousand calories a day oh yeah it was yeah, just it was ridiculous um but i absolutely loved it because i had my little britney mic on <laughs> like i was there i had my mat my dumbbells and i and i was like this is so surreal because i followed all of these programs and then now i'm doing my own and then I passed and got my level three personal training qualification. And now, yeah, people can go into the sweat app and they can do my six week energizing hit program. Which well, is, energizing yeah, it is. It's and it's, isn't it wicked? Because the thing is as well, as I said, I've got, you know, classes out there and you kind of, after a while, I think when you're there and you're in it and you're filming it, you, of course, you know, you're focused on that. But then let's say in a few months time, you're doing something else, but other people are waking up. Maybe they've just found it for the first time and they're doing that workout. And so it's such an amazing thing, especially as someone who, you know, back in the day, 12 years ago, I used to, you know, be a trainer and I used to work with people one-to-one, -one, but now it's like people can I don't know it's just bizarre that you know like I said you move on you're doing other things but people will send you a message or they'll do an insta story saying yeah oh, I've just worked out with Adrienne I've just or they'll be like I've just worked out with Fleur I've just done my 20 minute hit session and there you're there with them in their living room motivating them breaking sweats with them and yeah that impact you, you so many people hopefully are gonna be able to train with you it's really really wicked yeah it's cool and I remember I used to get quite obsessed with like trainers I used to follow so like, funnily enough, I followed Kayla It Signs for years mm. and she's the owner of Sweat, weirdly. And then I um, followed Sean T because he yes. used to do the Insanity program. And anytime they would like retweet you or or like reply to a DM or anything, you'd be like, oh my God, no way, like they've replied. And now it's like people are messaging me and, and I see things in my mentions and people are like, I've just finished Energizing Hit program with Fleur. And it's just like, it's so crazy how life just turns around and how you can be doing something and looking up to someone one day and then the next minute you're that person that people are looking up to. It's, yeah, it's, it's wild. So that's it for part two and for the best of Power Hour 2022. Wow, what a year it has been. I've absolutely loved it. I already can't wait for January. We've got an incredible lineup of guests ready to share their knowledge, their wisdom, their energy to help us all start the new year feeling great. So Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, everyone. We'll be back next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.